Welcome to American Dispatches. This is the podcast where we discuss emerging world news and interesting stories for an American perspective. I'm your host, Vic. I've traveled to 105 countries, been a contributor to Soldier Fortune magazine, hold a BA in international relations and an NBA. We're going to talk about a few things today. We'll cover the headlines, but I really want to get into the rise in corporate-sponsored social activism. Now, it's not exactly a brand new thing for corporations to to step in on certain issues, mostly environmental issues. But what this last year has really shown when we see brands like Rite Aid and Char- Charmin Toilet Paper, you know, weighing in on social justice issues, could this potentially be a problem? And also, who's manipulating who? Are these activist organizations essentially man- forcing these corporations to act and donate money? Or are these corporations essentially using the activist organizations to better their next quarterly earnings, possibly drum up some positive short-term PR. What's going on behind the scenes? So without further ado, let's get into it. For headlines today, we're just going to discuss one story because it could have some interesting ramifications for Middle East relations for the next several years. That's as Iran's election came to a close, the winner has been reported as the Iranian judge Ibrahim Rasai. He's a hardline judge who has uh, previously been sanctioned personally, himself, individually, by the U.S. government for his role in two things, hardline execution of political thousands of political dissidents in the 1980s, as well as a what was seen by the international community, a very brutal suppression of the Green Revolution protests in 2009 and 2010. He is seen as a fairly extreme hardliner. What was interesting about the election is uh, it had low turnout, less than 50% of eligible voters turned out, possibly because the election itself was seen as more or less rigged, not in how the votes were tabulated, but that the Supreme Council actually in Iran actually can dictate who can run and who can't. More center and more conservative candidates were largely seen as, as ineligible and couldn't run. So they more or less put this in the bag for this guy. He also has the endorsement. I think, believe he was the only candidate to have the endorsement of Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khomeini. So he is, as it pertains to U.S. foreign policy, open to a new Iran deal. That is still in play. Let's see how that kind of comes back to the come comes back to the forefront or not. But this guy being elected will have a huge impact on that. All right, on to the meat and potatoes of today. American public companies, those are large, typically large companies traded on the New York Stock Exchange, have almost all across the board made at least a statement, a contribution, some type of, or made some type of significant impact to social justice issues in the last year, year and a half. Now, it's not new for corporations to donate to charities, perhaps organizations in line with their kind of causes. For instance, Subaru is seen as a very environmentally uh, conscious brand. They, They have consistently donated to Sahara Group and environmental causes such as that. Ben and Jerry's ice cream has been known for its philanthropic work for years. What's new is you're seeing completely unrelated companies 
donate to charities that they really aren't seemingly connected to. So it brings about the obvious question, are these corporations being bullied by activist organizations such as BLM or others? Or are the corporations themselves largely doing the manipulation? If you look at a lot of the contributions they actually make, compared to an the advertising budget to some of these groups, it's minuscule. Nike, for instance, pledged $40 million to various social activist groups over the next four years. But when you look at Nike's advertise, annual advertising budget, you know this, this pales in comparison. So what's the history behind it? Well, first off, you got to look at public versus private companies. Public companies have always uh, been around. They're essentially companies, as I mentioned, listed on the, the stock exchange. They're open for any individual to buy stocks of. They're typically run by board of directors. And this is kind of a key differentiator between a public and a private company. A public company typically, well, they do have to report their quarterly earnings to the public and as such, as mandated by the Security and Exchange Commission. Now, as such, the case has been made rather effectively that all these organizations care about is the next quarterly profit. And indeed, executive payouts and bonuses are often tied to these things. So you could make the case very effectively. Everybody from Bernie Sanders to corporate execs themselves have pointed out that this creates a monster that is essentially just concerned about the next three months of profit um, and what they can do to kind of achieve achieve those next metrics. So when you have a, a hot issue in the public sphere, such as like a, you know a, a shooting or social justice issue, they might actually manage to see a bump in sales or essentially an exposure by just contributing to a cause, using their company as a platform to to give credence to that cause and so on. Now, don't get me wrong. Sometimes a lot of these causes are very valid, um, but the case could be made that it's just to get that short-term bump on the next quarterly earnings report. So private companies, it should be pointed out, often do this as well. The difference, though, being a private company may be more likely to look at the long-term duration of the company's presence and less invested in what would be considered a hot social issue at the moment or a hot button issue at the moment. And public companies are on the rise. Now, they did have a sharp decline in the late 90s. In fact, they dropped from 8,000, over 8,000 to just over 4,700 at the end of 2019. But 2020, man, saw a huge spike in them. 471 companies, including SPACs, which is just another way to, to get to a public offering, have come back, and they've come back with a vengeance. This is the uh, highest record uh, number since the 90s. Now, you could make the case that this type of corporate structure makes an organization ripe for exploitation. There are certain mechanisms in place to allow that to happen. It wasn't always this way, though. We'll start off with the beginning of social investing, if you will. It's known as, there's a term for it, it's known as ESG investing. That's environment, 
social and governance investing. It's kind of a catch-all term. It began in 2004, modern ESG investing at least, when then-UN Secretary Kofi Annan reached out to a large group of corporation and investment organizations, and he said, hey, we want you guys to get on board with what was then focused on environmental issues, um, which then expanded to um, governance and social issues. Governments being like, you know, you don't want to necessarily invest in a company who has a manufacturing base in a country that relies on slave labor. That could be a very simple, direct you know, example of, of a governance issue. Social issue would be more of the BLM, BLM type stuff that we've seen in recent months. So again, this started with the scope of the environment in mind. And it's not a small investment pool either. To give you kind of indication of the numbers, Bank of America estimates that the money involved in ESG investing could rise to over $20 billion here soon. Um, and that Larry Fink, he's the CEO of BlackRock, which is the world's largest asset management firm, has set out steps to push companies in their investment portfolio to move to a more environmentally friendly option. So anyway, that's the brief history of it. But now, let's jump to 2020. Again, 2004 starts as environmentally conscious issues, maybe looking at more socially conscious manufacturing. We get it. Now you have companies, as I mentioned, that have nothing to do per se with like manufacturing issues or like free trade coffee, that type of thing. Now you have Rite Aid pharmacies, you have cosmetic brands chiming in on transgender issues or Black Lives Matter movement, that type of thing. They're chiming in by using their companies as platforms to actually make cases as well as uh, contributing money actively to these organizations. In fact, that was part of the scandal we discussed a few weeks ago, which was one of the co-founders of BLM was essentially caught purchasing millions of dollars of real estate across the country the question begging the question very obviously even by your own supporters where did the money come from well arguably a lot of this money came from these kind of cor- corporate contributions so look you have these billions which will be leading in which will only be increasing in the coming years into these types of ESG type investing so it does beg the question look is this in line with what we want to see moving forward? Do we want to see companies essentially chiming in on every single issue? It's not fair to say that all ESG investing could be overblown because ultimately it has been a force for good. As uh, Larry Fink, the, the founder of BlackRock, did state that he says he ties environmental sustainability with large companies that, you know, hey, when they're focused on this, they're also focused on other things. They're they're looking at the, the long-term big picture, i.e. making it a good company to invest in. So perhaps a good bellwether and how connected the group is or, or whether or not this is you know a, a, a legitimate um, 
assistance to a social justice issue or just a group kind of trying to capitalize on whatever the hot button issue is at the moment is how connected that brand is to the issue. As I mentioned, like Subaru is tied to the environment. If there's an environmentally conscious issue, then that makes sense. But if, you know, you're Doritos and you're you're contributing to social justice issues after a police, you know, after a shooting in in Miami, you know, is that really is that the same thing per se? You got to ask yourself, does a brand have a vested direct interest in riding that short term publicity? So one way to stop this type of exploitation is if you see companies that are completely unrelated to the cause they're advocating for all of a sudden get hot about the issue of the day. You know, I'm the last person on the planet to basically make the case for cancel culture, but, you know, maybe spend your dollars elsewhere. I'm not saying outright boycott the company. You could go as far as to email um, email them, let their opinions know, make a post on social media, let the company know that, hey, you're just not kind of in line with this. Um, look, it's been said time and time again that freedom comes with responsibility. And every generation kind of has its own struggles with that. This is one of those fronts, perhaps, that our generation is really going to have to battle on. Are we allowing our systems to be manipulated for gain, uh, either corporate gain or perhaps um, misdirected social gain? You know, and by extension, if you're a high-level employee or perhaps a board member with one of these organizations, maybe it's your time to to, to show a little uh, courage for freedom and just say, no, hey, we don't agree with that. Or more directly, we don't have to agree or not agree. We're a company. We sell tennis shoes. We sell soda. We, you know... It's not our position to take a position on type on these types of matters. So it's really something to focus on here, guys. It's our generation's fight, and it's really, you know, really something to think about. And that's all we have for today, folks. As always, the world is an exciting, badass place. Stay informed. You can do so by tuning in here on Apple or the Google Play Store. Until next time, vaya con Dios, America.